Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each recording I'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. If you've got questions, ideas for topics or simply want to know more about upcoming podcasts, follow hashtag AskTheGeographer on Twitter for the latest updates. When refugees resettle into new communities, it can impact sense of belonging, place and home. So how can this be negotiated and managed? In this podcast, we're joined by Dr Sarah Kinden and Amber Cale from Victoria University, Wellington, New Zealand. We'll be discussing their research into migration, homeliness, belonging and the methods that geographers use to explore these issues through qualitative data. What does the term place attachment mean? Um, So place attachment is generally defined as an individual's emotional attachment to a place. So that would be a place that has some type of meaning to them Um, and it will be different for everybody. We were also talking about how there's different scales to place. Um, might be like a home or a city, a neighbourhood, a country. Um, or it could even be like people or feelings um, of what place means to different people. And Scannell and Gifford have a tripartite model of place attachment which has three different dimensions. So the first dimension is people and that focuses on who is attached and looks at either the individual or the collective, so groups of people. Then there's place, which is the object of attachment, so what people are attached to, and that can be the social scene or the physical environment. Um, And then there's process, and that is how people become attached to a place, and then look at emotions and um, cognitive processes and behaviours. No, I think, you know, there's a lot of emphasis now on place attachment, partly geopolitically in terms of what it means to be part of a group or part of a nation. Um, And often ideas of attachment to place are tied in with nationalistic discourse. You know, you belong to this country or will you fight for this country or you're with us or you're against them. So place attachment is generally thought of as being really positive, but there can be sort of a negative underbelly too, and it can be used to exclude people or to define who's in or out. So could you potentially say a little bit more about how place attachment occurs at various scales, thinking of the local, national and almost global as well? Yep. There's, with my work, I'm looking at the senses um, and so that's like the different sights and sounds and smells and things around and how people become attached to a place through those senses. So that's kind of looking at those proximate areas um, very close to you, which you engage with on a daily basis and how people kind of build up emotional connections to those places or how they might feel displaced because of different kind of smells and things that they're not used to. Um, and then building up attachments to wider places like cities or nations and things, places which you might not necessarily be involved with on a daily basis. There's probably a lot more to do with um, the general culture and a feeling of belonging to a a wider group, sort of those imagined communities and and feeling like you're part of something bigger as well. I think there's definitely the... 
All of these scales and forms of attachment are happening simultaneously often. So as Amber said, you know, individuals are processing the immediate sensory environment and what resonates or what where there's discord or but then also they're engaged with how they're being affected by the media or how they're being affected by memory um, or how they're called into different relationships with place, perhaps being um, enlisted in the military and then having to fight for a country um, or perhaps they're forced to flee from their country because of war and so they have to form a new sense of place attachment perhaps in a refugee camp or when they finally get resettled, if they get resettled. Um, I think also that often place attachment, um, so it has these emotional registers and it has political registers and it also is tied in with how people interact with each other. So a place can take on a different hue and a different sensibility depending on how people interact through particular kinds of encounters. It might just be simple, repetitive patterns of hello, hi, how are you? Or it might be something more significant in terms of perhaps a local council opening up a space for a cultural performance. How is the term home used by geographers? So home, again, is something that we talked about being on different scales, whether you're attached to a house or your family, where you think of home as your whole country or, or your city or whatever. And a lot of times people talk about home as being a place of safety or a sanctuary, somewhere where you feel comfortable. Um, but there's also that other side of things where home might be a place of um, terror or something that you're scared from, particularly in the refugee context. A lot of people are in places that are very violent or unstable. I think a very individual thing is to what home means to people. Yeah, I'd, I'd add in too that in addition to sort of um, the experience of refugees problematising that that nice and cosy kind of idea of home of huddled around the hearth, you know, that was quite sort of prominent in the 1970s with with authors like uh, Ifu Tuan, um, that feminist geographers, particularly and then queer geographers, have problematised the home, pointing out that often it's a place of violence or abuse or an inability to be oneself because while queer youth might want to come out of the closet sometimes the home is where they have to stay in the closet and they can be out um, beyond the immediate confines of the home yeah so it's it's a little bit like place again it's it, you know it's highly politicized can you tell me more about where your research into these concepts has taken place so for my master's research, that was based in Wellington in New Zealand and I brought together groups of former refugees who were living locally and then um, local Wellingtonians who had been there for longer and we came together to explore ideas of home and belonging and public visibility, so yeah, how visible people were around society and we created a big mural together to explore these ideas. So we kind of discussed what home meant to individuals and how we could um, symbolically represent that. And then we negotiated how we could kind of weave all these different ideas of what home is together into one big multicultural mural. Um, and we kind of situated that within Wellington, which was a home to all of us in, in some way and on some level. Yes, and just to, to build on what Amber said, well, Wellington's the capital city of... New Zealand, so um, 
you know, what happens there kind of influences the country in different ways. It's, it's a city of about 200,000, round a harbour, and it's one of the most ethnically diverse cities. Auckland is the most ethnically diverse but it's been resettling refugees and it's the home of economic migrants for many years since um, the New Zealand government brought first Pacific workers over to help um, the economy. I think it's also important to recognise that one of the things that became prominent in the discussions between AMBA's participants was also the place of Indigenous peoples within what it means to be home and how people belong because... New Zealand has a population of 4.5 million, so pretty tiny to uh, many places in the UK, um, maybe the size of some of the cities here, and that's the whole country. Um, But 15% of that population are indigenous Māori people, and so they have a treaty with the Crown, the British Crown, which assures them particular rights. And so their position um, in terms of claiming space, claiming home also has um, a bearing on how refugees and migrants forge their home when they arrive. So when refugees resettle, how is their experience of home renegotiated? Perhaps I could uh, talk to that. So I've been working a lot with young people over the last 12 years with um, a refugee-led organisation, as well as uh, working with women um, in terms of resettlement experiences and, and most particularly a group of Chilean refugee and migrant women. And some of the themes that come through are um, some of the challenges of forming a new home and new attachments just in terms of figuring out how things work, where things are, where it's safe to go, um, Also getting oriented in space, so getting used to the climate, getting used to what foods you can grow, um, getting used to how many layers you need to wear because the seasons change so rapidly. And so there's quite a lot of ambivalence that comes through when people talk about home. There's gratitude and optimism around what can happen in this new home. But there's also a sense of loss and longing for what's been left behind, often loved ones who may still be in danger or other ones who perhaps need money sent back to support them. So people are kind of living these translocal homes where they're, you know, in touch a lot through their mobile phones or their WhatsApping and Skyping. They're very aware of dynamics in in where they've come from at the same time as they're building new relationships with people and the environment where they live. Does this challenge the sense of belonging felt by local communities? Yeah, um, in my master's research, because we were talking about how New Zealand is like a bicultural nation and um, we've got the indigenous Māori population and then there was a treaty signed between Māori and the Pākehā settlers when they came over from, from England. Um, and so the treaty sort of set the precedent for it being a bicultural country and there's a lot of ongoing negotiations with the treaty but it's really kind of left a feeling that Māori and Pākehā are the rightful people in New Zealand and that newcomers coming in might not have the same sort of right to belong Um, and not everyone will feel that way but there is a a kind of feeling that's come up a lot in different research projects where 
yeah, people sort of prioritize um, Māori and Pākehā. And so I think some of the people who are seeing refugees coming in um, are kind of questioning why should we give resources to them when people who already live here might need them and, yeah, just sort of questioning what order things should be done in and who should be prioritised. But there are also a lot of people who, who are very welcoming of refugees as well. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting situation, actually, because um, we're kind of in a situation, a time period, and I think in New Zealand, where there's renegotiations of a bicultural past rooted in colonisation. And as a whole series of settlements have come through for Māori groups, which have been the Crown effectively recognising atrocities under colonisation, there's almost a kind of a door closing on we've settled the past and now we can look to the future. That's contested, of course, but it's an opportunity then for us to say, well, what does a post-treaty settlement era look like? Where do these new groups fit? How do we work together to honour Indigenous peoples, to recognise um, that we have a multicultural society and how do we move forward? So there's been a groundswell um, of support for refugees in particular over the last 10 years, I would say. Yeah. Um, uh, a colleague of ours, Murdoch Stevens, um, and Amber and others led a very successful campaign to increase the number of refugees that the government was accepting into the country. And that's now changed. And, and the quota, the number of refugees being accepted, will be doubled very soon under our new government. And alongside that, we've got a whole lot of groups, particularly led by churches, who are interested in supporting a community-based model to help bring even more refugees in. So I think, as anyway, you've always got these processes which are very progressive and inclusive, and you've got um, also regressive politics where there's a reclaiming of the past, um, yeah... How can inclusive spaces and places be made to produce and make space for multiple feelings of belonging and place attachment? Yeah, this is a cool one, I think, because this is where really people's imagination and creativity and their politics can actually be written onto the landscape. So we were talking about the importance of having opportunities for people to see themselves in the landscape. So maybe it's through advertising, billboards, showing people, um, whoever they are, maybe Somalis, you know, so Somalis can see themselves um, in posters. At the university, we've been doing a lot of work to increase the visibility of refugee background students, and we just made a video involving refugee background students and so they will now be visible on the university website talking directly to people interested in coming to the university about it being an inclusive space. So it's about having people out there speaking, being visible, having their languages um, supported and heard and practiced. It's about having people seeing aspects of their cultural um, symbols on the landscape, it's about having resourcing for festivals, for, I don't know, performances, <laughs> all of those sorts of things that will invite other people who are curious to come in and dance and sample food and maybe even start to learn a language, who knows. 
Thinking of methods that geographers can use to explore these issues, can you share insights into creative ways of doing qualitative data? Um, a lot of my work um, has involved a lot of participatory uh, research, participatory action research, um, and participatory things like diagramming, so using lots of drawing, diagramming, uh, lots of post-it notes to brainstorm and generate ideas, lots of games, but also working with photography. We've done a number of photo voice projects, which basically involves young people using their phones or disposable cameras to take photographs of things that are important to them in relation to whatever research topic it is. And then uh, talking about the significance of those images and choosing which ones they want to represent in an exhibition. So we did that with a a high school, um, which was really significant because prior to the project there'd been some bullying happening of former refugees by some of the um, young people from Pacific Island countries whose parents had migrated years ago. And there were just misunderstandings between how different uh, masculinities and femininities were being performed by these young people. And so we did this photo voice project with people, young people from Colombia and Burma, many of whom didn't speak much English. But through the photographs, they were able to communicate their goals and aspirations. And the school um, created an exhibition that they showed in assembly, and one of the young women from Burma talked about her journey as a refugee. And the teachers uh, said there was hardly a dry eye in the assembly because all these young people who had not really understood what it meant when they were confronted with the story and the images and the aspirations of these young people, they were like, oh, I had no idea. So that was a very powerful way of, of visualising and, and really creating a kind of emotional connection that perhaps words wouldn't have done. I guess historically, and indeed contemporarily, textiles continues to be a fairly feminine form of work. How does gender intersect with these experiences and the research that you've been doing on homeliness and place attachment and belonging? Well, in the Arpiera group, definitely. I mean, the sewing and the making of Arpiera has been tied to women's craft and it's been reclaimed as um, a political act. But actually, around the world, there have been men using this kind of uh, process to speak out as well. But interestingly enough, what they tend to do is not do lots of detailed sewing. They'll use glue to, to stick uh, layers of um, cloth together, or sometimes kind of staple guns, which is kind of interesting, more sort of, I guess, maybe reflecting their energy or tools that they have at their disposal. Um, But I think what's interesting too is that, you know, any of these participatory methods enable men, women, um, and everyone in between those kind of hegemonic heteronormative categories to find a way to express themselves. And it allows different people to um, explore their own journeys into homemaking Because particularly in the context of Wellington, there's been a big recognition that women are often isolated in the home because they're required to carry on their traditional family duties. 
But actually, a lot of men kind of fall through the cracks because when they relocate, they don't necessarily have the same authority that they had in their home countries and they struggle with things that undermine their traditional authority and they find it more difficult to get work often because they're, people are more wary of them. You know, women are less of a threat um, or perceived threat. So I think, you know, gender's imbued in all of the processes of place-making and belonging and home and how we work draws out different elements. Um, what are imagined communities? Um, I think that was a term coined by Anderson. Ben Anderson yeah. in 1991. Yeah, so... Very good. <laughs> um, yeah, sort of the idea that you see similarities or a sense of camaraderie in other people um, and sort of imagine yourself to be connected to them in some way, even if you're not kind of like seeing them or you don't necessarily know them. So it's like the idea that New Zealanders might be an imagined community and you don't necessarily know every other New Zealander, but, but you have a sense of sort of kinship with these people. And then when you travel overseas, you might bump into someone from New Zealand and you're like, oh, someone from home. <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of that kind of, yeah, just imagine sense of being a part of something greater than yourself and belonging to a group of people. Yeah, it's, and it's often tied into ideas of a shared ethnicity or um, a shared cultural past. So, you know, one of the examples that's often given around imagined communities is um, connected to Palestinians and the notion of Palestine, which, you know, doesn't exist geopolitically anymore, but there is still that sense of that imagined homeland, that imagined community to come for those people who are living in exile. And so I think imagined communities can be very important for a sense of well-being and connection and for people to feel like they're part of something that is sustained through history and generations or that might kind of revive and um, almost sometimes tied into a kind of utopian future that we will once again be this imagined community, only it won't have to be imagined anymore. It will be, you know, real, material um, but also it can sometimes mean that there are ongoing conflicts because people are so attached to that idea of imagined communities which relies on boundaries of who's in and who's out. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discover the latest updates on learning resources and events, visit rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore IBG schools.